Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by the Bridge Initiative and FI360 Project. This is the Breaking Barriers series. We are Alex and Alicia, your hosts and resident fangirls of all women who break barriers for others. During the Breaking Barriers series, we highlight individuals from all industries and walks of life who have blazed trails for others. Each month, we'll focus on a different theme topic, and the theme for this month is Boss Boss Babes. Babes. Honoring women in positions of power and leadership. Today, we're going to talk about Julia Gillard. The Julia Gillard. <laughs> so, all right. We're talking about her today because Funny. of the barriers she broke for female leaders in government, specifically in Australia. Mm-hmm. She is the first and only to date woman to hold the positions of deputy prime minister, prime minister, and a leader of a major party in Australia very impressive yes yes she was quite young also in the whole scheme of things when she was leading the country so it's very interesting i can't wait to talk about her let's let's start with uh her in the early years okay she was born in wales that's england uh for those of you who didn't know it's not exactly england but it's next to england it's in the uk yes Geography. It's not in Australia. <laughs> uh, on September 29th, 1961, which is a fabulous birthday to have. Because it's yours. <laughs> it's my birthday. <laughs> Just a, a few years apart, though. Just a, a couple. Um, <laughs> she is the second of two daughters born to John and Oliver Gillard and the for, former Moriah Mackenzie. Her older sister, Allison, was born in 1958. Yeah, so... Let's talk about them moving to Australia. Yeah, which is so interesting to me. So so Julia actually suffered from bronchopneumonia, which is pneumonia that you can't get rid of. It, it's very prevalent in small children, and at the time it was sometimes a death sentence. Mm-hmm. So um, her parents were advised that it would aid her recovering if they lived in a warmer climate. So they migrated to Australia in 1966. She's five years old. Mm-hmm. They settled in Adelaide. Beautiful um, part is, of town. Yeah, yes, it is. I did some some Google Earth searching okay. on Adelaide. All right. Uh, it's, in, it's on South Australia. Did, I've never been to Australia. Have you ever been to Australia? No. I would very much like to go. Oh, yeah, but I want to spend, like, three weeks. Yeah, definitely. Like, that's a... Perusing the country. Yeah, yeah. I would, like, do a walkabout. I did... Okay, I'll walk. Uh, I did some searching and uh, you know I'm very interested in weird things and all of the like the majority of the population of Australia is all centered on the east coast and like Adelaide's like the farthest city to the south in the east that's interesting so it's kind of like lots of empty space on the west in the center what is the west I don't know what is west anymore with Australia because it's backwards, right? It's not backwards. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yes, east coast. There's not many people in the west. So what you're saying is I need to go buy land in western Australia. That terrifies me. Um, anyway, so their, their first month in Australia was spent in the Pennington Hostel, which is a now-closed migrant facility that was located in Pennington, South Australia. Mm-hmm. In 1974, which was eight years after they arrived, uh, Julia and her family became Australian citizens. 
And as a result, she she actually held dual citizenship until she renounced her British citizenship before she entered the Australian Parliament in 1988. All right. So, obviously, they have school in Australia. She went to school. Um, <laughs> Not everything's backward there. Not everything's backwards. <laughs> um she attended Mitchum Demonstration School before going to Unley High School. She actually began an arts degree at the University of Adelaide, during which she was president of the Adelaide University Union. Student government. Yeah. In her second year at the university, she was introduced to politics by the daughter of a state labor minister. Um, accordingly, she joined the labor club and became involved in the campaign to fight federal education budget cuts. So she cut short her courses in Adelaide in 1982 and moved to Melbourne to lead the uh, to work the Australian Union of Students, which she ended up being the second woman to lead. And she served until the organization's discontinuation in 1984. She was also the secretary of the left-wing organization Socialist Forum. Um, and she, you know, having transferred her studies to the University of Melbourne, um, she did graduate with a Bachelor of Laws degree in 1986 and a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1989. Which is also pretty interesting that she got too. Yeah. Um, so in 1987, she joined the law firm Slater & Gordon in Werribee, Victoria, working in industrial law. By 1990, she was a partner at the age of 29. 29. She was the youngest partner within the firm and one of the first women to hold the position in Australia. Let's talk about that for one second because this is crazy. She's young. Me. Is very yeah she's very young, and I looked it up. The average age of uh, somebody making partner in a law firm in the U.S. is fifty-two. Yeah, and but isn't the U.S. kind of based on experience? And- I think so, but in Australia, it's more. From what I understand, at least, it's more based on the value, um, like the value you can bring into the firm. So, makes sense. You know, I'm, I'm assuming dollar bills. Um, and, like, the, the, the absolute minimum experience or years uh, before you make partners, like, nine, basically. So she did it in three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, in any event, in 1985 to 1989, she served as the president of the Carlton branch of the Labor Party. She stood for labor pre-selection in the division of Melbourne prior to the 93 federal election, but was defeated by Lindsay Tanner. And tell, tell me what this means. Okay. <laughs> Break, Australian politics, uh, when Alicia and I were doing the, this research, was very confusing. The election many, process. Many conversations about... What does the, that even what mean? What does this mean? How does this work? We sketched it all out for ourselves. So, essentially, it's what Americans would equate to a primary... So, they vote to see who would do the best, and it's mm-hmm. called standing for or stood for. Um, and then those people move on to be in the final vote. So, in this case, she didn't actually make it into the final vote mm-hmm. because she was eliminated, which we're going to get into a little bit more yes. later. So, but she, she, she ran. She was in the primary election, and she lost. Yeah, So, basically. she didn't make it onto the... The final ballot, I guess. Um, So, at the 1996 federal election, she won the third position on the Labor's Senate ticket to Victoria. Behind Robert Ray and Barney Cooney, however, 
In the final distribution of preferences, she was defeated by Lynn Allison of the Australian Democrats. So. Distribution of preferences. Talk to me about that. That's the one that confused you and me. It's kind of confusing. So let's say you have five people running. Yeah. And the person with the least, if there's no clear majority, if nobody gets over 50%, Mm Then they start doing basically runoffs, but you don't re-vote. When you vote, you vote, you rank the five people. So it's not like in our elections where or you, you just pick, pick one. Like yes, no. No, it's not yes, no. You you rank. Mm-hmm. So it's like you pick candidate A, then B, then C, then D, then E. So candidate E, who has the least number of votes, will get eliminated in the first round of runoff. Mm-hmm. And then those persons, his number he was number one for let's say two percent of the people all the people that voted for him now they're getting put in their number twos are getting their vote so then the number twos get the vote if there's still no clear majority they do this again so then they remove the fourth mm-hmm. most voted person who is now the least voted person those people's votes it's either their second or third depending on if they voted for the person that was already eliminated once mm-hmm get redistributed to the people that they gave preference to in their second and third list, if that makes sense. Yes. So it's basically just a runoff of who has the most votes preferentially in the top five. Mm-hmm. Until somebody gets a majority. 50%. Right. So she didn't get a majority. majority. She was in the third position, but... Because of the runoff, the way the runoff votes happened, she ended up not getting the seat. She was defeated by somebody else. Right. The Australian Democrats. Mm -hmm. So that was the 1996 federal election. Um, Later that year, I guess, uh, 1996, Gillard, she, she resigned her position with the law firm Slater and Gordon in order to serve as the chief of staff to John Brumby who was at that time the leader of the opposition in Victoria. Um, She was responsible for drafting the affirmative action rules within the Labor Party in Victoria that set set a target of pre-selecting women for 35% of winnable seats. So what that means is in seats that we can win with a woman, let's try to put women in those seats, basically. It's not like 35% over all of the seats. It's just 35% over the ones that are pretty safe to them. Right. Right. So she, she also played a role in the foundation of um, EMILY's List, which is the pro-choice fundraising and support network for labor women in Australia. She's actually cited Welsh labor politician Anurin Bevan as one of her political heroes. So... She had another person, another woman who was a, a political hero to her. So she wanted to be a political hero to somebody else. So she was finally elected mm-hmm. to the House of Representatives at the 1998 federal election representing Lalore, which is a safe labor seat near Melbourne. What that means is that it's typically votes labor. Um, if you were going to put it's it a in safe a safe bet. Yeah, a safe bet. She just had to beat the other labor candidates. So, And that was... Uh, she, she was part of that 35% mm-hmm. of women. She replaced Barry Jones, who retired. Mm-hmm. Um, she made her first speech at the House on November 11th, 1998, 
and she was a member of the Standing Committee for Employment, Education, and Workplace Relations from December 1998 to December 2001. That's kind of what she became known for. Yeah. She really cares about education. Yeah. That was her big platform. Right. So then she also started to be on the committee for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs Mm -hmm. in 2003. She was on that for a little less than a year. So within all that, she was a member of the Public Accounts and Audit um, Committee as well and the Native Title and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Land Fund. That's a lot of things. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of (laughs) committees um, to be elected to and to be beholden to and responsible for uh, during your first, was that a year? Yeah. No, a few years. Yeah, her first couple of years. Yeah, she... Up to 2003, 98 to 2003. Yeah, she she really, like, aligned herself with the party, her party, the Labor Party, um, the, their, like, socialist left faction. She was left to the left. Yeah. Yeah. So. Which is interesting. Now we're going to talk about something that I thought was a character in Harry Potter and not actually a part (laughs) of the government in Australia. It's really interesting, though. Like, I I wish we had this now that I know what it is. I yeah, I really think that this is really interesting. So it's called it's called a shadow minister. And shadow ministers, they're basically members of the opposition. Um, so, like, the opposition of the majority party that's that's in control of the government. There's two major parties in Australia. So, it's, right, it's right. one or the other. At this point, the other party is in, in, the, in the majority. M- majority. So, right. they're the actual government. So, the Labor Party is the shadow government and yes. the shadow ministry. And the, the ministers, the shadow ministers, can't call them just ministers. They're definitely just the shadow ministers. They are chosen by the leader of the opposition. So it's basically like the the shadow prime minister. Yeah. Which is like the minister of magic. Yeah, it is. So in any event, these people actually concentrate on the work of a particular minister or government department that they shadow. And they put forward and explain their own policies. But they also sort of scrutinize the work and question the validity of what their their counterpart is doing. And it's important for them to know what that counterpart is doing because in a federal election, if there's a vote and the the majority party changes hands, Mm -hmm. they become the actual minister of that department. That's so cool. I know. Why don't we have this? I don't know. Like Australia, man. I know. So, like, I would love, I would love for this to exist because we have a two-party system too. So why, yeah. why isn't this a thing? Anyway, I so want there to be shadow ministers in the U.S. And yeah, I want, I want them to minister. wear like black robes. <laughs> uh, do you also want them to wear large hats that are pointed at the top? No, just okay. black robes. I don't know why. Can you tell that we're Harry Potter fans? <laughs> so anyway, top-level shadow ministers form a shadow cabinet. Yeah, I want to be which, part of that meets regularly to develop their own policies and also cohesively work toward um, scrutinizing and keeping the majority party in check on their own policies. Yeah. 
and balances. I love it. I love checks and balances. Yes. We need checks and balances in government. So Julia is now shadow minister for population and immigration. It's 2001. She's later given additional responsibilities of reconciliation and indigenous affairs. In these roles, she developed a new immigration policy for the Labor Party, which at this time is the opposition, right. the minority party. She later, later on, she was promoted to the position of shadow minister for health and deputy manager of opposition business in the house to uh, Mark Latham. You're going to remember that name. And that was in July of 2003. Um, During this time, she shadowed Tony Abbott, who was also (laughs) a name you need to remember in just a second. We're going to talk about him. Their rivalry attracted a lot of attention from the media. For the entirety of her political career, career. basically. Yeah. Yeah. So... Anyway, uh, in the aftermath of Labor's fourth consecutive defeat in the 2004 federal election, it was widely speculated that she might challenge Jenny Macklin for the deputy leadership, but she did not do so. So on a personal note, Julia met Tim Matheson in 2004, and they had been in a relationship since 2006. She never spoke of wanting, having, wanting to have children, you know, and while she admired women who could balance child rearing with a career she said i'm not sure i could have there's something in me that's focused and single-minded and if i was going to do that i'm not sure i could have done all this i think that it was interesting that you noted this but when i when i read the rest of the this this outline that you put together and um you know did some of my own research i realized why you did because mm-hmm. there was and, and there has been a lot made about her marital status. Yes. And about her not wanting to have children and not having children. She was called her some career. pretty terrible things yeah. for those decisions. Yeah. And I don't think we need to say it's unfair. But it no, is unfair. No, we don't. But it absolutely is unfair. And I think that every woman in our audience can understand. Right. So anyway, in January of 2005... Um, Mark Latham resigned as labor leader. So she pulled 32% compared to Kim Beasley's 25% and Kevin Rudd's 18%. Kevin Rudd, remember that name? Kevin Rudd. Although she had a significant cross-factional support, she announced on January 25th, 2005, that she would not contest Kim's leadership. Kim is a dude, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, Allowing Kim to be elected unopposed. Yeah, so about, like, a year later, she was promoted to the deputy opposition leader. So it's 2006, after Kevin Rudd successfully replaced the current... Kim Kim Beasley. ...party leader. Yes, and that was... Yes, absolutely. Uh, In in addition to her role as deputy opposition leader, uh, or DOL, as they call it, not our DOL. Not the same. um, She was given responsibility of, again, employment... Workplace relations and social inclusion. Mm-hmm. So, at this point, Kevin yeah. Rudd is the opposition leader. She's second in command underneath yes. him as deputy opposition leader. In 2007, the Labor Party, Party won the federal election. Yeah, and that was after years and years of defeat. Four consecutive losses. Yeah, but there was a lot of public dissatisfaction with... The Liberal Party Prime Minister at the time, which I, I mean, like I guess kind of led to the Labor Party 
winning. Right. So whenever the actual prime minister leaves Australia, the deputy prime minister becomes the acting prime minister in their mm-hmm. stead. Mm-hmm. So she quickly became known as a highly regarded debater with her performances during parliamentary question time, prompting others to call her the best parliamentary performer on the labor side. Mm-hmm. So, and, and this is going to be a repeating thing. There's a lot of changeover in the... In Australian politics, period. Yes. But who's leading the parties? Yes. It's constant. And we're going to talk about that um, a little bit more later. But um, if you feel like there's a lot of changeover, you're right. <laughs> yeah. So, so we're going to fast forward a little bit to June 2010. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Prime Minister Kevin Rudd still. Uh, he agreed to a leadership ballot to determine leadership of the party uh, and, and the Prime Ministership. So they do this when there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the current Prime Minister, and it, they do it often. Yeah, and, and, and Kevin Rudd, he had had a, a number of legislative setbacks, and he was... He was really suffering that time, a decline in the polls, and some damage to his credibility after uh, a case, um, a piece of legislature got dismissed um, that was, like, one of the key parts of his thing. Yeah, of his platform, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, um, she was, Julie is very popular at this time, but she declined to challenge him until several Labor Party members convinced her to do so. For the good of the party in the next election. This is like, he calls the vote on the morning of day one. Mm-hmm. And she says, I'm not going to challenge you. And then everyone rushes to her office and they're like, you have to challenge him. We're going to lose the next election. Yes. And then, and then, yeah, Rudd used his chief of staff to ask around and find out if Julia was lying about challenging him. Which, what? Yes, which just proves that he never trusted her, didn't believe a word she said. So that was like the icing on the cake with all these people in her office. She finds that out and she's like, you know what? All right, I'll challenge him. I'm going to do this. Yeah. So, um, so anyway. (laughs) The next next morning. He realized he was not going to win with her name in the box. No. So he, he withdrew. Um, and he resigned, actually, which allowed Julia to assume the prime ministership unopposed. And that is a normal thing to do when you lose a leadership ballot, is to just straight up resign. Yeah. Um, so, in any event, not only was she got sworn in shortly thereafter, and not only was she the first female prime minister, and the first to have never been married, she was also the second prime minister to have been born overseas. Right. Remember, she was born in Wales, which is in the UK. Kingdom. Not Australia. (laughs) Or England. Shut up. So, (laughs) anyway, um, the Prime Minister has this house a lot like the White House. It's called the Lodge. And she refused to move. Well, neither is the White House. Mm, (laughs) It's white. (laughs) It's a white house. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> she refused to move into the lodge until she was elected in her own right, which I think is just such a boss move that it was just beautiful. Truly a boss babe. 
Yes. So, uh, in any event, she she uh, was able to maintain her um, prime ministership. Prime ministership. Might Thank help you. Some words here. Yeah. Um, through what's called a minority government. So, a minority government. Uh, there, there's there's two major political parties, as Alicia was talking about earlier, in Australia, the Labour Party and the Liberals Party. And in this election, neither one of them had won an outright majority of the votes. This is the next federal election, by the way. Right, the next federal election, the one that uh, Julia had after she was um, basically given the prime ministership, after Kevin Rudd. So this is the first one that she has to actually win on her own. Right, right. So... Neither one of those parties got the majority of the votes, and they had to go around and get votes of confidence from the MPs that were not associated with either of those major parties, so like those in the independents, the Greens, those kinds of things. Um, Imagine those types of conversations. Like, yeah. excuse me, I would like to get your um, vote of confidence for in me. me. And my government. And my government, please, <laughs> so that we can have a government. That would be great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's... So difficult conversation. They were only four votes away from a majority. Mm-hmm. So they got the needed four votes, um, and they were able to form a minority government. Which, it was the first, uh, the country's first minority government since, like, 1940. Yeah. So, I mean, that just shows how much back and forth there is in Australian politics. Mm-hmm. and um, So, in any event, she's... Known for a few things during her tenure. Yes. Inside of Australia and outside. Let's talk about the Australian things that she's known for. And then we'll talk about the things that our Americans might know her for. <laughs> okay. So um, in 2010 or 2011, there was a, some really bad flooding that happened in, um, in Australia. I think it was on the eastern part of Australia. And uh, Julia had proposed, and this I think this was successful, a... Um, what did I call it? A flood, flood levy. levy. A flood levy, which was essentially this, this one-time income tax um, that was taxed on incomes over $50,000. Annually. But, I mean, it's a one-time thing. So yeah. It's just, so just so one time. Just, they just did it one time to help with the reconstruction and the rebuilding after the devastation of those floods. Yeah. Um, the other thing that she did was... She helped establish the National Broadband Network, which is high-speed internet for even the remotest parts of Australia, which mm-hmm. was a thing that did not exist until her prime ministership. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and to be fair, there were a couple of other things that were uh, not so great. Um, things that, like, didn't get passed or, yeah. you know, whatever. If you want to learn about her whole platform. Yeah, that thing, too. Uh, if you want to learn about her whole platform and, and all about that, I mean... Please do so. We're going to put the links for our research in mm-hmm. um, when we post this. So please go do some research on this boss babe. She's pretty cool. Please learn more about her. But uh, we're not going to cover it all here in the interest of time. No. What we are going to cover is some of the things that uh, Julia is known for outside of Australia. Right. Including. So this first one makes me cry. Yes. I know we're all shocked by this. So, no, um, nobody is shocked. I am not going to read this. You're, right, you're going to read this. You're going to be talking about this. <laughs> and then I'll chime in and then I'll talk about the other things. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. That. I'm not going to ugly sob on this right now. <laughs> well, she is. You just, just aren't going to. I'll do it silently. 
So, um, one of the biggest things that she is known for is um, this, this forced adoptions apology. Um, and basically what, uh, what was happening was these, these mothers, uh, they were being forced to give up their children by various establishments. Right. They're, and the important thing to note is they're young, unwed mothers. Yes. And yes. they were basically sent to a like place where they would have to, a home where they would yeah. have to, like, work for their pregnancy, like, for the room and board during mm-hmm. their pregnancy, and then they would give birth, and they would never be allowed to hold their baby, yeah. and mm-hmm. they would never... They would basically never leave those places. A lot of them... They were, like... It was like serfdom, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You have to pay off our bills for you to birth this child. And so they'd be there for years and years and years. And their families, I don't think any of them really knew how bad it was inside. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were coerced um, or forced to sign paperwork giving their children up for adoption. They would never be allowed to keep them. Right. So um, in, in March of 2013... Uh, Julia delivered a national apology on behalf of the Australian Parliament for the practice of forced adoptions that took place in Australia from from about the late 1950s through the 1970s. And this wasn't just in Australia. This was no, it, it was in the UK. Yeah. It wasn't that much in the US, but I mean, it did happen in the US, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Sparingly. So it's we not just like book we did earlier this year you and I yes. uh, about this and it was um it happened in the in the UK. Do you remember yeah. what it was called? No. But we can Something post that. Emily. Letters to Emily. Whatever. We'll post it. We'll post that. But anyway. Anyway, what she said. Here's what she said. Um, just a little bit of what she said. She, this is, this is a quote. So, we say sorry to you, the mothers who were denied knowledge of your rights, which meant that you could not provide informed consent. You were given false assurances. You were forced to endure the coercion and the brutality of practices that were unethical, dishonest, and in many cases, illegal. We are saddened that many others are no longer here to share this moment. In particular, we remember those affected by these practices who took their own lives. Our profound sympathies go to the families. With profound sadness and remorse, we offer you, we offer all of our unreserved apology. End quote. Um, It's a very beautiful, well-given speech. Yes. And it's given in front of like 800 survivors and the children so like if you want to if you want to watch this it's probably the most it's very moving it's very moving but it's probably one of the most known things she's known for outside of australia so that was what i knew her for before yes. we did all of this research i knew her for the other thing that we're about to talk about as well but okay um uh, but in any case let, let, me, let me finish on the forced adoptions i want to tell you about uh what she committed to in addition to this apology. So she committed to $5 million worth of specialist support and records tracing for victims of these forced adoptions. And then on top of that, an additional $1.5 million toward the National Archives of Australia to, um, quote, record the experiences of those affected by forced adoption through a special exhibition. Right. So that was one of the things she's really known for. One of the other things is... We alluded to this earlier, yeah, but she, throughout her political career, she faced enormous sexism. And I mean, she was called a she witch. She was called the B word. She was called some pretty terrible things. She devil. She, devil. Um, she was unmarried. 
childless. That was brought up a lot. Yeah. And, you know, so she couldn't help but battle sexism within her own um, political career because, I mean, that was just, like, a part of what she had to deal with. Mm-hmm. So. I think she handled it in a really cool way. She did. So she said, uh, Ann Summers said in 2012, who was a favor- former Labor Party advisor, Julia is being persecuted both because she is a woman and in ways that would be impossible to apply to a man. And then there's a journalist, uh, Peter Harcher, who wrote, she was a woman when she was popular. She can't be unpopular now because she's a woman. The change is the result of her actions in office and not her gender. Boom. Yeah. So she would constantly confront it in a political politically appropriate way but she would she would confront it and uh at one point tony abbott if you remember that name he's the leader (laughs) of the opposition at this point at this point now he was trying to get a member a member of the labor party removed as speaker because that member of the later labor party had sent crude and sexist text messages to i think an aide Mm -hmm. um which is a bad call it's just generally (laughs) bad practice but in any event... Let's be kind to each other. Let's be kind to each other. But in any event, um, he gave a speech about how sexism is wrong and misogyny is wrong and we have to get rid of this guy because he is sexist and misogynistic. And she just stood up and she was like, I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny from this man. I will not. <laughs> she, she actually went on to say, if he, who's Tony Abbott... Uh, wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia. He doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. That's what he needs. Damn. <laughs> Boss, babe. Then she took quotes, sexist quotes from interviews as he when he was a minister, and I mean the recent quotes in interviews that he had given mm-hmm. that were sexist and misogynistic, and read them in front of everyone. <laughs> I just, I just love that so much. <laughs> it was great, and like, and he's just sitting there like. Uh. Can you imagine the look on everybody else's face too? Like, uh, what do we do? <laughs> I don't know who to look at. <laughs> so the one that really stuck in everybody's in everybody's mind was that um, Tony Abbott was being interviewed with another person, and I don't know who that other person was off the top of my head, but. The interviewer asked something like, don't you think that women could lead as well as men? And the one other guy who's being interviewed said, I want my daughter to have the same opportunities as as a son. You know, I, I don't want her gender to, her uh, sex, her gender to hold back her ability to move forward in life. Mm-hmm. Do whatever she wants. And Tony Abbott was like, but don't we just all agree that men are better leaders? <laughs> You're like, oh, God. So he, he was um he was something else. He was something else. And so that became very uncomfortable for Tony Abbott because everybody watched that speech. And yeah. She went to a G20 summit I think right after that and so like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were there and like the president of Sweden or maybe Denmark. They all like that speech was fire <laughs> you know, they were all like that is great <laughs> so she more she got a lot of feedback about that speech internally in australia but also 
internationally internationally and a lot of press coverage because of the speech and a lot of the feedback was positive and it became a very uncomfortable time for tony abbott and his wife i would hope so (laughs) Uh, sorry, Tony Abbott, but not really. I'm not really sorry. Let's go back um, to to Australia now. Um, we're going to talk about February 2012. Let's let's go back and talk of, uh, some more because we've already talked about him a bit. Kevin Rudd. I dislike him. I know. <laughs> I know. But I dislike him because he goes against his word, and like we're going to talk yeah, about that very liar. soon. He's a liar. He's just shady all around. Um, I don't like the look of him either. Like, he just looks like he's just not a good guy. You know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, like, I didn't look at pictures of him because I didn't want to... I wanted to look in his eyes while I was doing oh, this okay. research, you know? All right. I felt like he made promises specifically to Julia and then went against them when it benefited him. Yeah, like, for example, in February 2012, he, he wanted to challenge Julia for prime ministership, but... But then he ended up resigning from her cabinet when she failed to repudiate cabinet ministers who publicly publicly criticized his time as prime minister. Right, which I mean, she she publicly, politically, in a in a respectful way. But in her first speech, she said, "We're moving forward from that time. It was stagnant. We didn't have great policies. We're going to move forward." Right. So I mean, like, it's not like she didn't do the same thing when she took over as prime minister. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was just trying to challenge her, and he didn't have enough votes. Right, but then after he resigned... This is February 2012. This timeline becomes very important. Yes, so so after he resigned, he said that he didn't think that she could win another election and had received support from her her supporters. So Boss Babe, being who she is, called a vote. She was like, let's just end this right now. Let's, let's just lay it all on the line... Uh, she said that if she lost this vote, she'd return to the backbench and then renounce any claims to the leadership. Backbench is like like a low-ranking position yeah. in the party. That's what that means. Yeah. So, and then, then she asked him to do the same. Which he did. He did. It's important to note that in February 2012, he said if he lost, he would stop challenging her. Right. <laughs> and, and go back to the back. Back of the class. So... What did she do? She won comfortably. Mm-hmm. Not even close. Not even close. So then, in like March... A year later. Yeah, like a year later. Yeah. One of his supporters, I imagine at his urging... Yeah. Uh, a little manipulated. ...called maybe. for another vote and backed him. Right. So, in response, Julia fired the guy from boss her cabinet. Babe. We're just going to now refer to her as Boss Babe. All right, Boss Babe <laughs> uh, fired her... F- fired the guy from her cabinet because she was like, this has already been put to rest. Like, let's stop messing with this. Yeah. Um, And then she was like, fine, let's do this. And she called for another leadership vote to occur. So 10 minutes before the vote, Rudd realized he didn't have enough votes, and he publicly announced that he would not contest her leadership per his 2012 commitment. She was elected unopposed, and she declared that the question of his leadership and her leadership were now settled, and... In respect to him. Yes. So, and this was March 2013. Let's so, three months later. Three months later, <laughs> June 2013, there were several polls that indicated the Labor Party would lose the general election. Uh, 
And then, like, a, a rumor during this time was circulated that Kevin Rudd was collecting signatures for an immediate leadership vote. What? Another one. What? Nobody wanted you to be leader. Like, just accept it. What a tool. I know. Like, just I accept it. Else, but I won't while we're just, recording this. Yeah, we're not. We'll pause, and then we'll call Can him all like, the names we want at the end. Yeah. Bleed me out a little. It's just really, it's really disrespectful to her. So disrespectful, and it just, it's just not a good... Okay, anyway, so before any of that came to light, Julia called for a vote on live television. She was like, fine, let's do this again. Um, She challenged any would-be opponent to join her in a pledge that while the winner would become leader, the loser would immediately retire from politics wholesale. (laughs) Wholesale. So then despite his earlier comments... That he would not return to leadership. Remember 2012. This was like... And 2013. Um, (laughs) Under any circumstance, Kevin Rudd announced that he was actually going to challenge Boss Babe Julia for the leadership. But he he did commit to retiring from politics if he lost. I don't believe that because he already did that twice and lied. So he's just going to do whatever he wants anyway and not actually follow what he says. But. But. So... What actually happens is he ends up defeating her by a margin of 57 votes to 45. She makes me want to barf. She was very classy about it. She congratulated Rudd on his win and announced that she would immediately tender her resignation. Which she did. Yes. She also announced in keeping with her pledge in the leadership vote she would retire from politics and not recontest her seat that she originally won in Lalore at the upcoming election. So in her final speech... She reflected on the honor of being the first female head of government in Australia and expressed confidence for the future of women leaders in Australia. I love this part of this. <clears throat> Do you want to read it? I'll read it, and you can just bask in it. Okay, great. All right, so... This is her words. This is her final speech. And I quote, There's been a lot of analysis about the so-called gender wars. Me playing the so-called gender card because heaven knows no one noticed I was a woman until I raised it. I've been a little bemused by those colleagues in the newspapers who admitted that I have suffered more pressure as a result of my gender than other prime ministers in the past, but then concluded it had no effect on my political position or the political position of the Labour Party. It doesn't explain everything. It doesn't explain nothing. It explains some things, and it is for the nation to think in a sophisticated way about those shades of grey. What I am absolutely confident of is it will be easier for the next woman and the woman after that and that woman after that. And I'm proud of that. That. That sentence right there. I love that sentence. I love the whole thing. Because she's politely saying, like, yes, I was treated in a, in a sexist way. But the country needs to think about that. Yes. She's smart enough to realize that if she comes out and says, well, I was treated in a sexist way... It's not going to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. She needs to challenge them to think about it. To so, really dig down and think about why. And right. how not to do that in the future. I love that, you know, she talks about the next woman and the woman after that and the woman after that. I mean, that's the thing that, you know, when we were talking about founding the Bridge Initiative, that was one of our like, founding tenets was that the finance industry becomes easier for the women that come after us. Right. Right, that's like our goal. Yeah. So I really like that she's looking forward, um, seeing her time, what she went through, maybe makes it easier for the next person. Yes. Yes. And, you know, 
I just want to throw out there that Kevin Rudd lost the federal election. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was only in office for 83 days after he replaced her. So, yes, giggle a little bit about that. Have a little evil chuckle in there. Uh, and I enjoy he, that immensely. None of the following prime ministers have been in office as long as she was. It, it, she was only in office for like three full years and, what, three days or something like that? Three, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of change. Yeah, a lot so of change. So she is actually the 14th longest serving prime minister in Australia. With three years and three yeah. days as her tenure. So, what, which tells you that she did a great job because mm-hmm. she was in power for so long in a system that replaces people, like, a lot. So Yeah, yeah. So, this was 2013. Um, well, I think it was June, right? June? June 2013. Um, <clears throat> and she did, she kept her promise. She retired from politics, um, moved back to Adelaide. Mm-hmm. And then began this like I don't know almost 10 years of her uh not 10 years this hasn't been 10 years yet there's this wave of her receiving all of these honorary degrees and doctorates and fellowships from these extraordinarily prestigious colleges and universities around the world um for all kinds of different things like um one from Brussels quoted that she, you know, she, he, she received this honorary doctorate for her achievements as a woman committed to education and to social inclusion and for the impact of her commitment on the social or, excuse me on the situation of children, youngsters, and women worldwide. Um, another one she was given um, from the University of Canberra was for her work in education and gender equality. And then uh, she was given another one. Um, for her significant contribution to political life. And um, the, the, I think it's the latest one. No, not the latest one. Um, December 2016, she was awarded an honorary doctorate um, for her education opportunities in Australia, especially to groups underrepresented in higher education. So, um, what else did she do post- she wrote a book. It's called My Story. It was published in 2014. In it, she stated that Kevin Rudd initially had to be the leader in there, in our alliance, because I understood that I was not what labor needed at that point, a woman who was not married and an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, she also did an interview sort of like looking back on her time as prime minister, and she said um, she was comparing Australia to the United States in 2013. With, it was with the Washington Post, I think. Right. She said, I think it would be inconceivable for me if I were an American to have turned up at the highest echelon of American politics being an atheist, single, and childless. I would tend to agree with her. Yeah. So, um, she <clears throat> wrote the book, and then she started taking on, like, chairwomanships and mm-hmm. becoming a patron of things. So... In February 2014, she was appointed Chairwoman of the Global Partnership for Education, which is an international organization focused on getting all children into school for a quality education in the world's poorest countries. Yeah, like we mentioned before, education was a big thing for her. She was very passionate about education. And and one of the other things that she was really passionate about was, is, I should say, is mental health. And, um, you know, in December of 2014, Julia, boss babe Julia, excuse me, she joined the board of the mental health organization called Beyond Blue, and it it was 
previously chaired by a former Victorian premier, Jeff Kennett. And um, in March 2017, he actually um, stepped down from the position during the second half of that year. And um, I think he, he was in there for almost... 17? Right, 17 years. And then she succeeded him as chair of Beyond Blue. And she became the first former prime minister um, since Malcolm Fraser to head a mental health organization. Very cool. I think it's interesting that there's these underlying themes throughout her political career that she, Mm -hmm. you can tell she really enjoyed because that's what she focused on in her post-political career. Yeah. So, like, mental health, Education. education. In that speech in Force Adoption, she meant she mentions the effect, the mental effect that would have on someone who was a part of it yep. and commits millions of dollars to it. So um, I think it's just really interesting that she was like, look, I'm out of politics, but I can still help the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, she has a, a library? Yeah, she has a library. Um, she is the patron of a library in Perth, and then she has her own library in um, the Melbourne suburb of Tarnit. Um, she also um, really interesting thing that happens. Okay. Are we ready? Yeah. Because in 2017, she was appointed a companion of the Order of Australia. For eminent service to the Parliament of Australia, particularly as Prime Minister, through seminal contributions to economic and social development, particularly policy reform in the areas of education, disability care, workplace relations, health, foreign affairs, and the environment, and as a role model to women. Boom. Would you like to know who nominated her? Please, enlighten us who nominated her. Tony Abbott. Oh, (laughs) The guy that she called a misogynistic, sexist guy. And read all those those text messages about in front of everyone. That's awesome. He at the time he was prime minister, so um, who wrote a letter testifying to her suitability for the honor. She is the most recent former prime minister to have received the award and the sixth prime minister overall. Yes, and in 2018 she was listed as one of BBC's. 100 women. I don't know if you saw that, but that was really cool. I see why. Mm -hmm. Boss babe. Boss babe. So let's talk about our legacy a little bit because I think there's this admittedly sexist mindset that women can't keep their cool, can't stay calm in positions of power. Well, boss babe proved them all wrong because Mm -hmm. um, this journalist, Sam DeBrito, he said... In four years of mostly minority government, we've not once seen Julia lose her cool despite parliamentary pressures and compromises that would have turned John Howard into Groucho Marx and made Tony Abbott's Abbott's head explode. Those were two other Other prime ministers. ministers. Make all the jokes you want about her red hair, but she's anything but flammable. She's cooler than the other side of the pillow, which we might have the great to admit in 10 to 20 years' time. Yeah. Boom. So in June of 2019, um, she was on a flight. I love this story. I think this is so cool. So she's on a flight, and and another passenger on this flight passed Boss Babe Julia a note, um, which just, it just sums up her legacy so nicely. Can I read you some quotes from it? Yeah. Okay. So here's, here's some quotes from this, this note that was passed to her. 
I want to say thank you for being such a strong, intelligent, and unapologetic role model for myself and so many of my peers. Watching you consistently strive forwards and fight for what you thought was right impacted upon my life at a very formulated time, and I decided to move to Canberra where I now work for public service. You smashed that glass ceiling out of the park for so many of us. So the, the person that wrote this works in a male-dominated older male dominated mm-hmm. um, industry industry thank you and she and her callings that are females have all sort of banded together to be each other's sounding boards and biggest supporters which I think is a natural thing in a dominated field like that yeah when you're in a minority yeah absolutely so they have this saying that it's a common saying yeah it's when one of us is being unfairly sidelined we use the term wwjd what would julia do it's our rallying cry to be the absolute best so i think it's really interesting that there are young women in public service who are being sidelined and they think what would julia do Mm -hmm. well she'd read all your sexist texts (laughs) (laughs) she she would stand up she'd say something you know she'd speak up but she'd do it in a in a way that would cool cool and calm um so then she wrote i'm so sorry about the way you were treated and even now i know it's something that the country looks back on in deep shame i hope so she also said i hope that we learn from it and you get the apology you deserve someday me too boom i hope that she gets an apology someday for the way that she's treated i hope that every woman every person of color anybody who was discriminated against because of something i hope they get an apology i hope that they feel what what do you think that happens everywhere everywhere to so many different people every day right but i think specifically in politics there's like a a barbed razor at the end of the knife yes it's well, it's more public. It's more public. And these days, I feel like people think they can just say whatever they want. It doesn't matter how hurtful it is. And, like, there's no filter. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's ugly. Yes. Yes. We are, are unfortunately living in a very ugly time. And I hope that, I hope that that changes um, very soon. I hope that we all realize that we should um, be kind to each other to... Stop tearing everybody apart. Stop tearing... Stop bullying each other. Think about a... Build other What would Julia do? Think about a way to... I disagree with you. I respect you as a person, but I disagree with you because of this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. That is a completely fair and appropriate way to disagree with someone. Attacking them for something they can't control is not. Like their gender. Yes. Yeah. Or their color. You know, it's just... Whatever it is. Or anything. Whatever it is. It's just... Anything that sets them apart from the norm, the mainstream. Right. So I think that um, if there are any politicians out there listening to this, please (laughs) consider that in your next speech um, if you're not already doing that. But I think that we can all do it from the bottom up, I suppose. So let's, let's toast to Julia. What do we want to toast her for? Being the absolute cool cucumber, boss babe, no nonsense, take no crap from no one, 
than yeah. she is. I would like to toast her for her um, policies that helped education and um, mental health, mental health, and for people that are in disadvantaged communities like yes. the Aboriginal community. Yeah, absolutely. So, I would like to toast her for thinking about people that were different than herself. To Julia. To Julia. There we go. Boss babe. Boss babe. Thank you for spending your time with us. Again, this is Breaking Barriers, an A Little Louder Now podcast produced by The Bridge Initiative. Thank you to my lovely colleague, Alicia, for this great conversation. (laughs) Thank you, listeners, for taking some time with me today, today to talk about the amazing boss babe, Julia Gillard. Stay tuned for more podcasts featuring magnificent women who broke barriers. And you know what? If you'd like to catch up on what we're doing, or if you have questions, or topic ideas, or you just want to be a part of our community, you can visit us at fi360bridge.com to check out previous podcasts, webinars, and blog posts. You can email us at bridge at fi360.com. There is a theme here. <laughs> and connect with us on Insta or Twitter at fi360bridge. You can also support the podcast without spending a dime by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we want you all to get a little louder now.